I invite you now to turn with me in God's Word to the book of Galatians. The book of Galatians. This has been a pretty special morning, hasn't it? Uh, Witnessing all of these baptisms. I trust we count ourselves privileged to have been here and to have seen these young people uh, enter the waters of baptism. It does beg an important question. Um, What were they doing? Uh, What is the significance of water baptism? Or let me frame the question in slightly different terms. Uh, These young people, I mean, what were they, from maybe age 7 to 17? Okay, Levi, age 7 to 17. Uh, What were they saying to us? I think that's a good way to frame the question. Uh, What were they declaring? And I want to try to answer that question uh, with you today in the context of the book of Galatians. And to begin with, I want to suggest to you that these young people were declaring that they believe, obviously, in Jesus Christ. Look with me at Galatians chapter 2, verse 15. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. And so the answer to that great question, the question of all questions, how can we have a right standing in God's sight? Or again, stated in slightly different terms, how can we be made acceptable in God's sight? How can we be justified in God's sight? The answer, evidently, is through faith in Christ Jesus. That is what these young people were declaring. They have believed. They do believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. There was a moment in time, perhaps some of the moms and dads were there. You were present. You recall. You remember where there was a dawning, if you like, of light. And an awareness on their part that they were and are indeed sinners, sinful in the sight of God. And not only did they acknowledge their sinfulness in the sight of God, but they acknowledged their need for God's forgiveness in Christ Jesus, who gave himself up as an atonement for their sins. And they recognized that Christ bore their sins upon Calvary Cross. Uh, They recognized that in bearing those sins, he also bore God's judgment on their behalf. And as they entered the waters of baptism, they were declaring to each of us this day, they were declaring before the Lord, I am a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. Secondly, as they entered the waters of baptism, they declared that they have been united to Christ. Look in Galatians chapter 3, verse 27 with me. And take careful note of what the Apostle Paul says in that verse. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. When these young people believed in the Lord Jesus, it might have been a week ago, it might have been a month ago, it might have been a year ago, it might have been 10 years ago. Whenever they believed in the Lord Jesus, at that moment they were baptized into Christ. They put on Christ. And today before us, they were declaring what? That they were indeed baptized into Christ. 
And as they went down into the water, what was that? It was them uniting themselves, declaring publicly, I am one with Christ in his death. I've died with him. It's crucifixion. And as they found themselves, although briefly, under the water, what was that? They were identifying themselves with Christ's burial. And as they emerged from the water, as Brian put it, to newness of life, they were declaring that they have been baptized into Christ. They are one with him in his resurrection. And God looks on them. He looks on all believers in the Lord Jesus, all who have been baptized into Christ, thereby putting on Christ. God looks on us as if we had done those things, the crucifixion, the burial, and the resurrection in our own persons. He imputes them to us. And therefore, we are one with Christ, and we have this absolute assurance that we are free of all judgment, free of all condemnation, and God has forgiven us our sins. But thirdly, they declared something else. They declared that they have received the promised Holy Spirit. Still in chapter 3, go back to verse 2. Let me ask you only this. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit, it's the Holy Spirit, by works of the law or by hearing with faith? It's a rhetorical question. We all know it was by faith. Skip down to verse 5. Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, miracles in the fact that these young people were saved, there's a miracle if ever there was one, their salvation, their new birth, he works miracles among you. Do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith. We receive the promised Holy Spirit by faith. Look at verse 14. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. One more reference into chapter 4, 6th verse. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son, it's the Holy Spirit, into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. And so through their baptism, moments ago, these young people declared that they have received, when they believed in the Lord Jesus, however long ago, they have received the promised spirit. They have been born again. And by virtue of the spirit's presence in them, they now belong to the age to come. But there's more. They declared something else. Not only that they believe in Christ, not only that they have been baptized into Christ and put him on, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. Not only that they are recipients of the promised Holy Spirit, but they declared before all of us, they did, they declared before all of us how they now intend to live. It's huge, folks. They just stated it from the 17-year-old to the 7-year-old, how they purpose before us. We all heard it. We all saw it how they intend to live. Look with me at Galatians chapter 5, 
verse 25. If we live by the Spirit, since we've been born again, since we have received the promised Holy Spirit, since we do indeed belong to the age to come, let us also walk by the Spirit. And that is what they were proclaiming. They were proclaiming they are a new creation. They've identified with Christ. They are now going to live as those who belong to the age to come. They are going to walk by the Spirit, or as we might translate it, and I think this is very helpful, they are going to keep in step with the Spirit. Now, what is that going to look like? Because we're going to hold them accountable to it. As elders of this church, those of us who are elders, we have no other choice. Parents, you have no other choice. We're going to hold them accountable to this. What will this look like? Paul's told us we can approach it from one angle. Back in verse 23, well, verses 22 and 23, where he has described the fruit of the Spirit. So we could answer the question going backwards to verses 22 and 23. I want to move ahead and answer this question. What does it mean to keep in step with the Spirit? Beginning in the 26th verse, all the way through to the 10th verse of chapter 6. Ignore the chapter divisions. They are not the inspired word of God. They were inserted. More often than not, they are very helpful. In this case, it is not helpful. It is one thought. Verse 26. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him. In a spirit of gentleness, keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor, for each will have to bear his own load. One who is taught the word must share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone. And especially to those who are of the household of faith. And so here's what we're concerned with. Here's our chief business. In light of these verses, what does it mean to keep in step with the Spirit? In the light of what we have witnessed, we were public witnesses to this. 14 of them, I think, baptized this morning. They were declaring, we are new creatures in Christ Jesus. We have put on the Christ Jesus and the life we are going to live, we are going to live by the Spirit and we are going to keep in step with the Spirit. Those of us who were already baptized a year ago, five years ago, 10 years ago, 50 years ago, do I hear 60 years ago? This is a tremendous reminder that we have been baptized. We made these declarations and we too are seeking to walk in newness of life. We are seeking to keep in step with the Holy Spirit. Well, what are the marks of this spiritual life? Paul gives us four. Here's the first. Keeping in step with the Spirit means avoiding conceit. 26th verse. Let us not become conceited, 
provoking one another, envying one another. I think we all have a pretty good working definition of what it means to be conceited. We all understand what it means to be full of pride. I think we get that arrogant, boastful, whatever term you want to apply. I think that's that's pretty simple and pretty straightforward. Notice, however, that Paul adds two participles, doesn't he? Let us not become conceited. Participle number one, provoking one another. Participle number two, envying one another. In other words, he's identifying two expressions of conceit. Conceit is the common denominator. It's the root of the problem. But it can go in one of two directions. We can go one of two ways here. And, you know, we can go in one direction. Conceit can manifest itself in what we call a superiority complex. And a superiority complex is very simple. Uh, those who have a superiority complex are simply, they're always basically answering one question. Uh, why aren't you like me? Why aren't you? Actually, maybe they're asking two questions. Why aren't you like me? What's wrong with you? That is a superiority complex. They have determined in their minds a it's a delusional state, but that they are better than others, superior than others. And a superiority complex is pretty easy to identify. It's not that, that, that difficult. There are two discernible marks, uh, telltale signs of a superiority complex. Impatience when frustrated. Defensiveness when criticized. If you, if you, if you see that, you, you know in 98, 99 point whatever percent of cases, you're dealing with a superiority complex. And a superiority complex, those who suffer from that, that kind of form of conceit, they will provoke others. They will provoke, provoke, and provoke. Why? Because their ambition, their goal is what? Not only to feel superior, but to convince others that they are superior. So it can go that way. Or it can go the other way. What's the opposite of a superiority complex? An inferiority complex. But it comes from the same fountain. Conceit. Does it really? Yes, it does. A superiority complex. Feeling of superiority. My question is what? Well, why aren't you like me? Uh, inferiority complex is what? Why aren't I like you? What's wrong with me? And from that feeling, that sense of inferiority, what are the telltale signs or marks, if you like, to indisputable hypercriticism of others? Hypercriticism, judgmentalism, that's, a, that's always a sign of it, dead giveaway, and avoidance of others. Just avoidance. Some who struggle with that will say, well, I'm just, it, it's shyness. Steady on, my friend. It might be. We have different temperaments. I'm not denying that. But sometimes shyness can simply be a polite way of saying or identifying an inferiority complex. And it is avoidance. Why? Because people don't want to be reminded of their own sense of what? Inferiority. But the root is the same. It's conceit. And the gospel is the only answer for conceit. We saw the answer. Was it 14, Brian? 14 times. We had the answer declared for us this morning that when these young people identify with the Lord Jesus and when they proclaim the gospel to us in visual form, pictorial form, uh, we were reminded of the only answer in a very powerful fashion for our conceit. We saw the answer for a superiority complex. What's the answer? Outside of Christ, I am nothing. And we saw the answer for the inferiority complex, which is what? In Christ, 
I am everything. And so if you have a skewed understanding of the gospel, it will, if I have a skewed understanding of the gospel, it will lead either to a superiority complex or an inferiority complex. It's not, that's not up for discussion, my friend. That's not up for debate. That is a fact. A skewed understanding of the gospel will result in one of those two things. Why? Because it means if I'm going that way, a superiority complex or an inferiority complex, something isn't quite connecting when it comes to my understanding of the gospel. And so we have a Roku at home. Maybe some of you have a Roku. And this past week, the thing wouldn't work. I was banging on it, doing all that technical stuff you do to try to get it to work. And finally pulled out the plug. And I'm looking at it. The wire, half the wire, I don't know how. I like to blame someone else. Maybe it was my own doing. I don't know. It's, it's cut. It's broken. Therefore, what? No current. Electricity is getting through. Ergo, it's not working. And so, too, if conceit is a problem, and we go this way into a superiority complex or this way into an inferiority complex, we know there's a disconnect somewhere. You get out that cable and you go carefully through that cable and you look at it and you examine it. Somewhere you're going to find something is severed. Something's not right. It's not getting through. It's not computing. The signal isn't being received. Oh, my friend, if you're walking by the Spirit... We will heed this command. We will not become conceited, provoking one another or envying one another, but we will revel in our identity in Christ. Outside of him, nothing. Oh, in Christ, everything. And so it humbles the superior-minded individual and it exalts the inferior-minded individual. There's the first mark. Second mark is this, keeping in step with the Spirit means restoring transgressors. Verse 1, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. What is the relationship between verse 26 of the preceding chapter, verse 1 of chapter 6? It's very simple. Unless we get verse 26 right, unless we are putting verse 26 in order, Uh, Verse 1 will never happen. You see, the individual who suffers from a superiority complex, well, that individual, when it comes to carrying out the admonition in verse 1, well, that individual is actually going to seek confrontation and never fulfill the commandment in verse 1. The individual who's struggling with an inferiority complex, well, that individual is going to avoid confrontation at all costs. And therefore, they're never going to obey verse 1, uh, verse 26. Unless verse 26 is in order, all our pegs are lined up. Verse 1 is never happening, folks. And so we can't go any further unless we're clear on the first mark of what it means to walk or keep in step with the Holy Spirit, avoiding conceit. And then once that is in place, the second step, restoring transgressors. Notice what he says, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgressions, what does he mean by that? Here is what he doesn't mean. He isn't referring to a John 8-like incident. Do you remember the woman caught in adultery? That's not what he means. In that instance, it was a woman caught in the very act of adultery. Paul is not saying, look, if it ever happens that someone is actually caught red-handed in sin, you should restore him. That's not his point. We could better translate it as follows. If anyone is caught by any transgression. And so here's a believer who is seeking to keep in step with the Spirit. 
who here is a believer back in the language of verse 16 of the preceding chapter, who is walking by the spirit and seeking not to gratify the desires of the flesh. But that person is all of a sudden caught by a transgression. It overcomes them. They sin. That is the individual in view. Paul does not have the person in view who is abiding in sin or continuing in sin or has this deliberate attitude towards sin. That's not the person Paul's talking about. In that case, how we're to handle them is very, very different because that is willful, stubborn disobedience. That's not the person Paul's describing here. He's describing the individual who is caught by a transgression. This is something that actually runs contrary to their general tenor of their life, the direction in which they're heading. Well, if we become aware of someone who is caught, overcome by a transgression, you who are spiritual, well, who are the spiritual? That's not an elite group of Christians. Who are the spiritual in light of what we have learned in the previous chapter, verses 16 through 25? The spiritual person is the person who's born again. We live by the Spirit. I remember sitting with someone who brought my, my attention to a, a, an individual who had transgressed. And, and this person who, who raised the subject said, you know, so Stephen, what are you going to do about it? And my response, well, what, am I, what are you going to do about it? And well, I'm not a very spiritual person. To which my reply was, you have completely butchered Galatians chapter 6. In admitting you are not a spiritual person, you're actually saying, I'm not a Christian. To be a Christian is to be spiritual. To be a Christian is to be born again. To be a Christian is to be a new creation. To be a Christian is to live by the Spirit. And so it is you and it is me. If anyone is caught in any transgression, you are a spiritual, should what? Restore him. That verb restore is precious. It's used in scripture in reference to mending nets. It's used in the Bible in reference to rebuilding walls. And so it is this idea of restoring something that is broken or something that has fallen apart. It is also used in biblical times in reference, interestingly enough, to setting a bone in place. And I really think that gets more to the heart of the matter that when a brother is caught by a transgression, he is now walks around with an arm, if you like, or a leg, a joint, a bone that is out of joint. Have you ever had a bone out of joint? Or have you ever suffered from a broken bone? All is not well. The impact upon the whole and how we favor that, you know, that, that limb that is out of place or that bone that is broken. And so the doctor, the physician must come along and very carefully, what? Restore, set that bone right so that it heals properly or adjust it slightly so that he can get it back in place, in joint. The problem is what? That's actually a very painful process. That's actually a very unpleasant process. And yet it is needful, isn't it? Extremely needful. When it comes to repentance and restoration, there will always be pain before there is relief. Always. Always there will be pain before there is relief. Oh, as I glanced at my watch, I wasn't going to, had no intention to go down this road, but here we are. We're, we're on this road. Stay with me. Pastorally then. 
as, as I just think on this, I, I would be remiss of me, a failure on my part, if I did not say this pastorally, because it is entirely possible, as we just look at this group here, gathered this Lord's Day morning, that there is someone who for days, weeks, do I hear months? Is it possible years? You've been walking around favoring a bone that is out of joint. And you've been in pain and discomfort for I don't know how long now. But you've left it unattended. You've left it unaddressed. And you have done so because you have wanted to avoid what? The pain. You have wanted to avoid what? The discomfort. And now you are in the state you are in because of that neglect. I pray by the Spirit of God you will hear me. Pain always precedes relief. There is restoration. But getting that bone back in place is going to hurt. Is it possible? Is it even conceivable? That there is a Christian here this morning, and as you just hear me now, you're thinking to yourself, penny dropped, that's me. That's where I have been living. Friend, you can go on trying to avoid the pain, and all you will do is prolong the agony. It is time to address it. It is time to go through whatever discomfort it might involve, and I promise you, I promise you, there is relief on the other end as we repent of those sins, sins that we have covered, sins that we have tried to forget about, sins that we have excused before God, but things that are there, they have nagged us, they have haunted us, and we have been limping and limping and limping for a season now, and our attitude has been, don't touch me. It's time for somebody to touch you. And it may very well be time for you to address that sin, repent of it, and turn from it so that there might be restoration. And as someone perhaps comes alongside you, here's the admonition. It is to be done in a spirit of gentleness. It's the same word back in verse 23, very first word, fruit of the Spirit. It is to be an individual who is born again. It is to be an individual who is living by the Spirit. It is to be an individual who is keeping in step with the Spirit. And as we engage with one another, it is to be done in this spirit and attitude of gentleness. And then notice the last admonition in the verse. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. What's the great proverb? We all know it. Pride comes before a fall. Just remember it. Pride comes comes before a fall. There's a second mark of what it means to keep in step with the Spirit. Here's the third mark. Keeping in step with the Spirit means bearing burdens. Verse 2, bear one another's burdens. What burdens does he have in mind? Well, he just mentioned one, a man, a woman, a boy, a girl, professing Christian who has sinned. That is now a burden, and we are to bear one another's burdens. We are to attempt to come alongside to restore and to lead that individual to repentance and, by consequence, restoration. So there's an example, but I think Paul is thinking in much broader terms. Uh, bear one another's burdens. There are all sorts of burdens, aren't there? Uh, some of our number are bearing physical burdens, illness, disease. Some of our number are struggling with emotional burdens, bereavement, abandonment. 
Some are dealing with financial burdens arising from disaster, arising from whatever the case might be, the origin of the problem. There is a plethora of burdens. And Paul's admonition is that when we keep in step with the Spirit, here's what we will do. We will bear one another's burdens. Notice a couple things. When we do this, we're actually fulfilling the law of Christ. That's what he says in the rest of verse 2. So fulfill the law of Christ. What is the law of Christ? I don't mean to jump around too much, but just go back into the fifth chapter quickly, 14th verse. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. I mean, Christ is the great exemplar of this, isn't he? One who loved his neighbor as himself, gave himself. We have it so, so powerfully portrayed for us in John 13 when he prostrated himself before the disciples and washed their feet. As I have loved you, so too you are to love one another. This is the law of Christ. This is the fulfillment of the law when we carry other people's burdens. And when we do this, notice secondly, we need to be careful to examine ourselves. Verses three through five, it's convoluted. I admit it. It's a little tricky. I don't deny it. But just keep three things in mind. Just quickly, just bear down here just for a moment. Verses 3, 4, and 5. We need to keep in mind uh, our own vulnerability. And as we seek to bear others' burdens, we must examine ourselves. Just three things. Number one, conceit will prevent us from bearing other people's burdens. Verse 3, for if anyone thinks he is something... So he's reverting to verse 26 of the previous chapter. If anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. And so if conceit is an issue, guess what? You'll never carry other people's burdens. Why? Well, if you suffer from a superiority complex, you'll always look down the nose at them. Well, you, you've made your bed, now lie in it. That'll be the attitude. If you suffer from an inferiority complex, you'll never help people because you won't know people well enough to help people because you'll always be avoiding, always on the fringes, always, well, why aren't I as good as them? And always avoiding anything too close, anything too intimate. And so Paul says here, conceit must be dealt with. The second point he makes is this. We aren't to compare ourselves to others, whether it be the superiority complex or the inferiority complex. We are to evaluate ourselves. Fourth verse, let each one test his own work. And then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. And so I'm not supposed to worry about that, what God has entrusted to you what difficulties God has given to you. I'm not to judge you for these things. I'm to worry about what God has laid at my feet and put on my plate. And then thirdly, the third point is this. We must remember that we will bear our own load on the judgment day. Verse five, for each will have to bear his own load. And so the admonition is simple. Back in verse two, I hope I didn't lose you there. The admonition is simple. Bear one another's burdens. And so fulfill the law of Christ. The obstacle to fulfilling that admonition is conceit. And so how must we deal with conceit? We must recognize what? That it will prevent us from fulfilling this admonition to carry one another's burdens. We must examine ourselves and what God has given us and not judge people on the basis of what he has given them. And we must remember that we will bear our own load. I will not be judged for your load on the judgment day. And you will not be judged for mine. Each will carry his own load. And so this freedom in Christ, the freedom, the liberty to get our eyes off ourselves, not come at people from either vantage point, whether it be superiority or inferiority, but on the basis of the law of Christ, love become to lift up and carry one another's burdens. Fourthly, here we go. Lastly, 
Keeping in step with the Spirit means doing good. So it means avoiding conceit, verse 26, chapter 5. It means restoring transgressors, verse 1 of chapter 6. It means bearing burdens, verses 2 through 5 of chapter 6. And it means doing good. Look at the sixth verse. One who is taught the word must share all good things with the one who teaches. So Paul is there establishing a, a principle in terms of how a local church is to function. What I want you to notice is that word share. It is not simply giving. It is not simply handing over. This giving is actually an act of fellowship. It is a participation in the gospel. It is a participation in the ministry of the word. It is a participation in that local church. But he's not, think, he's not thinking simply in terms of giving to those who teach. It's but an example. He's thinking in much broader terms. Look at the 10th verse. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. There's the precept, doing good to everyone. He gives one specific example that is caring for those who teach the word. That's the precept. Look at the principle. Verse 7, do not be deceived. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. This is a moral universe. We live in a moral universe. Whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. We live in a moral universe. And so if for the next three months I decide to live on nothing but potato chips and Dr. Pepper, I'm going to reap something. Am I not? It's a moral universe. Cause and effect. We heard the ice earlier this morning. If I decided to pull out on the 56 here in that ice and wind it up to 80 miles an hour, I'm going to reap something on those slippery roads, aren't I? It's a moral universe. If I go this way with a superior, superiority complex or this way with an inferiority complex, if I, my basic governing principle is conceit, and that is my attitude, my approach to my relationships, guess what? I will reap something. We reap what we sow. It is a moral universe. And Paul's point is what? He's applying this now to the realm of, of giving and doing good. Well, those who sow from his own flesh, and so those who are governed by self-love, and those who don't give, as I'm describing, those who aren't concerned about doing good, they will reap corruption. It's eternal death. But the one who sows to the Spirit, that is the one who does give, the one who does good, will from the Spirit reap eternal life. There is an eternal reward commensurate with what we sow now. That is the principle. And the promise is what? Verse 9. Let us not grow weary. Because it is wearying sometimes. Let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season, we will reap if we do not give up. Oh, doing good. It might involve giving sacrificially, time, money, whatever. 
It might involve serving tirelessly. It might involve leaving home. It might involve enduring difficult relationships. It might involve surrendering leisure, leisure time. It might involve foregoing personal comforts. It might involve stepping outside of our comfort zone. And many times it might appear that there is little, little, very little, minuscule, I can barely see it, even under a magnifying glass, fruit. And it is easy, therefore, to what? Grow weary. What's Paul's admonition? It's a command. It's a command, folks. Let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season, we will reap. I think we can interpret that in three ways. Uh, we will reap a harvest in others' lives. We will at some point, I'm thinking especially in the context of the local church doing good. We may see someone converted. The Lord might actually use us, me, you, in the salvation of someone. Oh, what a harvest that is. We might see a marriage restored as a result of doing good. We might see a relationship preserved. We might see someone strengthened through a debilitating illness. We might see someone growing in the faith and maturing from infancy, spiritual infancy to spiritual adulthood. Hey, it might even be possible at some point we'll see 14 people baptized on a Sunday morning. Do you think? What kind of fruit is that? What kind of a harvest is that? Now, you might be thinking to yourself, there are none of my, none of my children up there. Moms and dads scattered throughout the auditorium. You might be thinking to yourself, well, I've never taught Sunday school. I've never taught any of those kids. I haven't contributed anything. You might be thinking, I think there was a Brooklyn up there. That was one name I got. The other names, it's just, it's just all a blur now. I'm not sure I really did any good there or contributed in, in, in any way. Oh, my friend, you have a very narrow view of things. Do you contribute to this church, Grace Community Church? Do you give to this church financially? Do you give of your time to this church serving in this capacity, that capacity? Do you do your thing, whatever it is, big or small, however we define those things, do you do your thing as God has gifted and equipped you. You might be thinking to yourself, I had no direct impact or influence. But friends, the 14 baptisms were the fruit of Grace Community Church. They were the fruit of a collective effort. They were not the fruit of one single individual or one particular gift. You give as God has equipped you. You give to the whole, and it is the whole then working in unison from which we reap the fruit. And so you're thinking to yourself, I don't have all the names straight. I never taught any of them in Sunday school. I contributed nothing. You give regularly financially to this church. You are here participating in the meetings of this church and the worship of this church. You do engage in cleaning up when it's your care group's responsibility. You do lead a care group. You do disciple individuals, ones and twos, here's and there. My friend, we just reaped a harvest. Do not grow weary in doing good. In due course, we will also reap in the lives of others. 
I think secondly, we can understand it looking at the harvest in our own lives. That as we do good, the personal benefit is incalculable, isn't it? That the effect it has on us, the impact giving ourselves and giving ourselves sacrificially and contributing to the whole and serving as God has enabled and equipped and called us. Uh, that is part of Christian growth. That is part of Christian maturity. And thirdly, we can think of the harvest in the future. I think that might be principally, primarily what Paul has in view. In due season, oh, there's a future harvest coming in glory. We will reap. And perhaps the greatest harvest, perhaps the most rewarding harvest of all, will be to hear our Lord and Master on that day say to us, well done. Well done, good and faithful servant. Well done. Oh, what a harvest. I don't know if all of that was going through your minds when we saw the baptisms this morning. What is baptism? What were they doing? What were they declaring? Now, they were making it very clear they believe in the Lord Jesus. They were making it very clear, declaring that they have been baptized into Christ and therefore they have put on Christ. They were proclaiming that they have received the promised Holy Spirit. And they were announcing to all of us how they now intend to walk. They intend to keep and step with the Spirit. For those of us who are believers, I think that's the, the word of the Lord this day. Reflecting on our baptism, remembering our baptism, are we keeping in step with the Spirit? For those who aren't believers, what was God saying to you today through these baptisms? What is God saying to you through his word? I think his message to you is very simple. Uh, look to my son. Look to my beloved son. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, shall, shall not see corruption but shall inherit eternal life. He was declaring to you that he has appointed a way of salvation. He was declaring to you he has made reconciliation with him possible. He was making it very plain, as plain as plain can be, that the only hope of salvation and forgiveness of sins is to approach, approach a holy God through his son, Jesus Christ, who gave himself up for sinners, our Heavenly Father. We pray that you might now take this word and impress it deeply upon our hearts. And may the fruit be evident in our lives. And may the fruit resound for your glory. We do now intercede on behalf of these young ones who were baptized and pray that uh, you might lead them and direct them faithfully as you have promised according to your word. May they veer neither to the left nor to the right, but walk the narrow way and walk in a manner worthy of our calling in Christ Jesus. And for unbelievers present, may you convict of sin, convince of truth, and show them the beauty of the Lord Jesus and your abounding forgiveness to sinners who come to you through him. This we ask, praising your name, matchless name. In the precious name of Christ, we pray. Amen.